Now, as we come to Acts chapter 4, we've, we've come a little bit of ways from the day of Pentecost and the giving of the Spirit. We've come through that day of Pentecost also where not only was the Spirit given and given those particular manifestations that day, but the gospel went forward. And on that day, 3,000 were brought by the grace of God to saving faith. Now, as we came uh, last week and we were looking at chapter 3, in chapter 3, uh, Peter and John had gone to the temple. Now, a little bit of time in the, in the early church had passed, and as they had gone to the temple, they had healed a crippled man. And that's really what, where chapter 4 is taking up the interaction, because they had healed this crippled man, and then it had gathered a group of people, then they had preached the gospel to these people, and the Sadducees, the, the captains of the temple, had come and laid hold of them and arrested them. And so we're going to, as we, as we look at this, part of what we just want to see briefly is something of what is a Sadducee. I don't want to take too many things for granted. We have seen as we've gone through, anyone who's read through the gospel can see that in this day and age there were two primary divisions among the religious communities in Israel. They are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now at times you would have a, a, a threefold description of individuals. Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. Now, scribes being specifically those who are involved in studying and in teaching on a more intensive level. Most of the scribes were of the camp or community of the Pharisees. But what's interesting is at this, at this particular time in history, the best of our knowledge tells us that the Pharisees were the party with the most people. But the Sadducees was the party with the most power. That's the one that had appealed more to the nobility, the elite, the wealthy. Because it also so happened that the family that is the high priestly family at this time, of which the way that it was happening at this, in this particular time, it would be handed from father to son to son-in-law back to father. And, and, and there's a high priestly family that would pass this duty around from season to season. And the high priestly family at this time were also Sadducees. Now, there's some distinction within these communities. Uh, it's important to note this. What characterized both of them was, was a legalness. Uh, there was a commitment to the old covenant law. And sometimes very carefully, very pedantically, over the top in detail. The Pharisees in particular had added to and codified uh, more laws than even scripture had laid out so that's why when jesus was giving sermon on the mount for example at times he could have said you have heard it written under the old testament but i say unto you but many of the things he said also he would he could simply say you have heard it said but i say unto you because at they were at a point where the children of israel they, they couldn't really tell so now which of these laws are from god and which of these laws are from men and Jesus warns them, look, you make void the word of God by following the word of men as commandments. Well, here, when we come to the Sadducees, the scripture actually tells us some of the things that distinguish them 
in their particular brand of leadership and that they were legalistic just like the Pharisees, but the Pharisees had more of an inclination towards the invisible, the spiritual, and the profoundly miraculous. The Sadducees tended away from that. In Acts chapter 23, using biblical sources, what we want to whenever possible, rather than external sources, it says this. In Acts 23, 8, it says, For the Sadducees say, There is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge all of them. So the invisible things, angels, spirits, they simply deny that. That there would be resurrection from the dead, they deny that. They don't have a clear, and among those who are Sadducees, there's a variety of views of the afterlife and of what happens. But the reality is this, it does not matter what was the view of the Sadducees, what was the view of the Pharisees. It doesn't matter what was the view of, of any of the pagan groups, because truth always comes from a singular source, and that's the word of God. And all of these particular groups, even though they would give a degree of verbal commitment to the word of God, more often than not, they hung on the words of their leaders, on the words of their men. And those words held almost more sway than the scriptures did. And please note, as, as we're ready to say, what's wrong with them? They did not have Bibles as we did. The, the common man living out in his home, they didn't have documents. They didn't have scrolls. They did not have the scriptures where they could say, okay, the teacher just said this, but let me compare that with the word of God and go home and dig in and open it up like we can and should do. They couldn't do that. So there was a, a, a great degree in which these are the men who have access to these documents. These are the ones who are studying it. And this is what they're teaching us. And so the men could kind of teach whatever they wanted. And people didn't know. Not unlike the centuries that followed. As we remember, as time went by in the early church. And suddenly people began to introduce what initially seemed like sculptures to remember those who have gone before us suddenly began to not be sculptures and art but have people kind of bowing before them and praying to them and lighting candles to the and suddenly idolatry is creeping its way in and and, and various other practices and various other traditions begin to creep in uh, sometimes just influenced by the pagan culture around them sometimes by the sway of local leadership to hold power over the people but the people had no means of recognizing what is true and what is false. It was just too easy to be missed. Praise God. One of the glorious things that he brought about in the days of the Reformation. Not only had he stirred up men uh, leading into the Reformation who were continuously studying, going back to the scriptures and saying, what's going on is wrong. What's being taught is false. There became this push, get the word of God into the hands of God's people. 
get it into their language that they can understand it so that they're not held captive by men any longer. And more than that, the bigger, bigger danger even potentially is being held captive by our own minds. Our own expectations, thoughts, and assumptions of who God is, what God should be like, what a good God would act like, what a loving God would behave like. We men stir up all kinds of ideas. By giving the word of God, we get to shut our mouths, God willing, and open our ears and let God tell us who he is, what he does, what he will do what he demands and or expects from us. It tells us this also in Acts uh, 5, 17 and 18. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in prison. So they denied certain truths that the scripture teaches and their biggest temporary passion had nothing to do with God had nothing to do with truth. It had to do with power and influence. And if somebody else is coming along, they could care less whether they're sent of God, whether they're declaring truth. All they know is they are a threat to our power, our prominence, our position, our influence. They got to be done. And they're facing a difficult situation here because... These men have just healed a man who was lame for 40 years since birth. And they can't deny it. And the people are all gathering together. And as they gather together, we remember they are proclaiming Christ. His power, his glory, his death. His resurrection, the salvation that is in him, and that he is the one who has raised this man. He is the one who has made this man whole. And these are the very men who themselves did what? Yeah, had given themselves to the crucifixion of Jesus. My mind is often blown because I do remember back when they got report that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead... Instead of saying, oh my, who is this one who after many days has raised Lazarus from the dead? Who is this who has power over death and the grave? No man can do this. None who have gone before him have done like this. Who is this one? We need to listen to him. We need to learn of him. You would think that, but they had one thought in mind. We've got to stop this. Now that he, instead of, now that he's done this, maybe we ought to listen more closely. Their thought was this, now that he's done this, everyone's going to follow him. We got to put an end to him. Not a moment at which they're asking themselves, how did he do this? What is he saying? Should I not listen to him? They did not care about truth. And so that's where we get into really our first um, First point of the day, and, and the first uh, point of three simple points. Remember, we're looking today at, at um, the idea of reactions, resurrections, and then uh, resolves. 
The first is reactions, differing reactions. What we have take place here in, the, in, the, in chapter 3 and moving into chapter 4 is the same teaching, but different reactions or different responses. They all, each one of them, it tells us in verse 4, heard the word. Let me, let me again read that, uh, read that to you. It says this in verse 4, but as many as those who heard, many of those who heard the word, everyone who was gathered there heard the word. I love the way that the scriptures put it by saying the word, by having the definite article the and word. It, it, they weren't just hearing words. <laughs> They, were, they weren't just hearing stories. They weren't just hearing thoughts and experiences of the apostles. They were hearing the word. Christ himself had conveyed to those men a word with authority to be communicated in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. The word of God. Not just words. Every one. So the Sadducees heard the word, the other people gathered, heard the word, but you have completely different responses. Why is that? What's going on? To see also about that the first, when we see the first aspect of a response, let's see the Sadducees response, which is in verse two and three. It says this, greatly annoyed greatly disturbed the old king james there says grieved not strong enough more than just grieved it carries an abundant sense which is why the esv says greatly annoyed the new american standard and niv say greatly disturbed they were highly agitated do you know what that means you've probably seen people in that state before Never ever yourself been in it, but seen people. The, the sense of the word, if I was to unpack it with a lexical meaning and, and into terms that would be really familiar to us, is they were strongly irked. They were provoked to anger, much disturbed, troubled, displeased, offended, pained. Uh, it, carrying the, the original word there, into, in, into more, more modern phrasing, it, it would basically say this. It got these men really worked up. They, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't just a, a feeling that was in them, it, but it was a feeling to the degree that it's not staying inside. It's not something that you can quell, that you can suppress. It was, yeah, it's coming out. It's road rage. That, that kind of sense here. Um, now, to get, to get a feeling also of, of this grieved and annoyed, we, the, we see this word one other place in the New Testament. It's in Acts 16. In Acts 16 and 17, you have this young woman who has, uh, been ta who has a demonic spirit and she's been taken by men and she's telling fortunes, 
telling people's future. And as Paul and uh, uh, Barnabas have gone into this town, it says, she followed, verse 17 of Acts 16, she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Now, when I, when I look at that, I, I, there, there's a part of me that says, amen. I mean, that's free advertising. I mean, you've got, you've got this woman, and, and she is proclaiming 100% truth. Many demons do know a great deal of truth. They know that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They know the power of God. They know the name of God. They believe and shudder. But it tells us this in verse, the, the next verse, verse 18. She kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned to her and said, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. Now someone would say, why would he be greatly annoyed that this, this lady is somehow leaving her table and following them around and making this announcement. I'll propose two potential options. Since I wasn't present. I cannot say definitively. Um, but one thing is this. If they're trying to teach the people the gospel. And while they're still trying to teach. She's standing next to them. These are men that are God to proclaim to you the way. Can you be quiet and let us do it? It could be disturbing and interfering. And secondly, and what I consider more likely, is this. This woman, in her fortune telling, she represented the pagan gods of that area. She was not a believer. She was not a lover of the Lord. And, and the last thing that Paul would ever want is for there to be agreement between the table of gods and the table of demons. She represented the table of demons. She was known in that community and in that area that that's what she stood for. And for her to come along and strive to be their personal promoter, their unpaid representative and agent, almost would, could potentially in the minds of people, right now she's promoting these men, and later, she's going to be over at this table telling us what uh, Apollo and these other gods tell us. It has this ability to destroy it. And so greatly annoyed uh, that she continues to follow. And at the possibility of people not seeing the distinction between truth and error. Between a true and living God and the only way of salvation... And another way. He brings an end to it. The, uh, again what's interesting is. It, when this same feeling happened to Paul. He brought an end to it. This has to be stopped. And he spoke and cast out the demon. That's the exact sense of these Sadducees here. This has to be stopped. Now what are these men doing? They healed a man who had been crippled since birth, and they're proclaiming salvation, indeed resurrection, in the name of Jesus. So, some who heard the word, their response is they're greatly 
disturbed. Others who heard the word, their reaction is that they were graciously delivered. The same words. And some greatly disturbed and some graciously or gloriously delivered. So what makes the difference? I mean, it was the same message delivered at the same time in the same method with the same inflection. Why in the same message do some hear it and they are provoked within themselves to a negative response? And why are others provoked within themselves to call out in faith? <laughs> why different internal and then following external reactions to the same word? Because look what it says here. Uh, they heard the word. Again, we're back and forth. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. Now, it's very important for us to see this connection. Those who heard the word believed. Now, I'm going to work you through a few things. And, I, and I'm hopeful that God's word will help us see things more clearly. Now, if we slow down. And instead of hearing the word of God and kind of twisting it to what we've always heard. But we just slow down and really listen to what those verses say. They can really help us to learn things more clearly. It tells us this in Romans chapter 10. So many who heard the word believed. It tells us this in Romans chapter 10 verse 17. It says, so faith comes from hearing. Hearing through the word of God or the word of Christ. So faith comes from hearing. Now this is, this is something I just want you to stop for a second and, and listen to those words. Because I, we've said this in the past. The, the modern mentality has turned everything around backwards. Even the, the modern practice, the gospel is backwards. Remember, in the modern practice, the tendency is to, is to beg people to please accept Christ. Instead of to declare to people that you should know this. There is no hope that you will ever be accepted by God except through Christ. Christ is the only hope that God will ever accept you, forgive you. This is the question all must wrestle with. How, what is your hope for God accepting you? But we've turned it around instead of recognizing God as the one on the throne of all eternity to whom all men must answer and from whom everyone's eternal destiny will be declared. We've somehow taken God off the throne and we've now put the man on the throne. Will you accept Jesus? No, we tell them you must accept Jesus. You must repent. You must believe. If you do not, nothing awaits you but the fearful wrath of God. 
fiery judgment. You must repent. You must turn. You must believe. You must follow. You must do this. We say it with an urging. We say it with a pleading. But we don't make them king and master. We tell them that's their only hope. Because he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the only hope of righteousness. Faith, so again, faith comes through hearing. It's not the traditional way of saying it. And even how I was taught growing up is the thought was this. You hear something, hear it, and put your faith in what you hear. That makes sense to us, but we've heard it, right? You've heard it. Now you need to put your faith in it. You need to believe in it. Well, this is not telling us that, um, that faith itself is ours. And then we attach our faith to what we've heard. That's how we generally think of it. This actually says faith comes through hearing. The source, the instrument, the conduit of the delivery of faith to someone. Hearing is the means by which God delivers faith to an individual. Faith comes by or comes from hearing. It's not that faith comes from us. Faith comes from God granting us to hear his word. Well, uh, let, let's, let's see it a little bit more. So on this day, Sadducees are there. Many of these others are there. The same word goes forward. And some of them, no, this must stop. Others of them, yes, this is true. The same word. For some, faith came through hearing. Well, how does that work? Well, Deuteronomy 29.4 reminds us of the, uh, or ex helps us to understand this. And always when you, when you wrestle with this, the scriptures are so, so clear on this issue. So I, I'm hoping I can make it as clear. If not, at least note down these scriptures that you can go back and read them. In Deuteronomy 29.4, by this time, remember, God himself did all of those tremendous plagues in Egypt. Correct. Did, was there any in Egypt or even among the children of Israel who would say to themselves, huh, I wonder if God exists? I mean, his existence is undeniable. Now, whether they would in love submit to him and serve him and obey him alone, we know with the children of Israel, that's not the case. But that he existed and that he was powerful. What happened when they came up to the sea? The sea divided and they passed through on dry ground. But remember before the sea divided. Here's the enemy bearing down on them. And what happens? God brings a fire impassable between the children of Israel and their enemies who are coming at them. Again, God is leading them day by day, pillar of fire and a, and a pillar of cloud and cloud overhead so that they're not horribly scorched by the sun. 
He's providing them manna from heaven. Food falls from heaven like dew every night. And then quails. And then where there's no water, water out of a rock. I mean, they're, by the th and remember, as they're going through 10 years, 20 years, you know what's still not wearing out? My clothes are still good. My shoes, my sandals are still good, not worn out for 10, 20 years. And it's not in any sense due to quality of craftsmanship. It's all the power of God. Even in such seemingly ordinary things, so that there's no one among the children of God uh, or the children of Israel who should have said, I'm not so sure if I believe in him. Because they can look over at the temple and the temple is effectively a flame. <laughs> so there, there's no, but, but even though it was clear that he existed and he was powerful, how did they still respond? Deuteronomy 29.4 tells us the shocking truth of why they continued in disobedience constantly. Deuteronomy 29. And I asked myself that for a long time. How could they? I, you know, we, we start to think if God would do those, the things today that the children of Israel saw, then surely everyone would turn to him. That's how we think. But then we forget. How many among the children of Israel ultimately were faithful? You know, I'm not even ready to throw Aaron into that camp necessarily. We can kind of back it. Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, pretty much, right? Maybe a couple of the sons of Aaron, Phineas, certainly stood between the people at one point and averted, but so few. Deuteronomy 29.4 says this. But to this day, by the authority of God, Moses explaining to them why they continue in unfaithfulness, why they continue in disobedient unbelief. To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing the word of God. These people this day, different responses. Some of them heard the word and what? Believed. What made the difference? And we get this too wrong commonly in this day. What made the difference? To some, God gave them a heart to understand. Eyes to see and ears to hear. To others, he did not give it. And so they were still stuck in their jealousy, in their blindness. They saw the miracle. They will acknowledge in chapter 4 that the miracle is absolutely undeniable. But they won't for a moment consider what that miracle might actually mean concerning the person of Christ. See, John 8, 43 says this as Jesus is speaking to some of these um, unbelieving Jews who are challenging him. He says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot 
hear my words. Now, I'm sure that 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 could have struck up an argument there. It is because you cannot hear my words. I'm sure one of them at that moment could have raised their hand and say, let me repeat for you what you've just said in the last 60 seconds. You know, what are you saying? We can't hear your words. Fact, you just said we can't hear your words. Well, you hear them, but you don't hear them. As I've said before, and we've been looking at, whenever you're reading through the Gospels, it's one of those shocking things to see how often Jesus said, let he who has an ear, let him hear. When you come to Revelation and all those letters to the churches, he state, brings that up again. Let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Some will hear it. With, with a understanding, a receptiveness, and others not. Because the scriptures, the truth of the gospel is spiritually discerned. That's why it tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man doesn't understand the things of the spirit because they are spiritually discerned until God by his spirit enables someone. They don't. Look what it says in, in Acts chapter 16 really helps us with this idea. The, again, uh, Paul has come and they're looking for those to minister to. They come out to the river and there is one there by the name of Lydia, who we're familiar with. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia as they came out to preach the word. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple who was a worshiper of God. Listen to what it says in Acts 6.14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and after she was baptized and it goes on the Lord opened her heart the way the the way the new American standard translation says it which I think does a great job here it says this the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul so again what makes the difference on any given day the Lord is the one who opens the heart. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. In Philippians 1.29, the scripture says this. As he speaks to those in, in Philippi, even warning them of some of the struggles that they will face. He reminds them of something that is an unbreakable, factual, well-known truth to them. And says this, for it has been granted to you. So he's going to speak of, in a moment right now, of two things that have been given to them by God. It's not what they gave to God, it's what God gave to them. Two things have been given to them. It says this, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should, one, not only believe. So one of the things that's given is what? Faith in him, but also suffer for his sake. So uh, it, that's astounding because in some of the modern churches, not only do they not do they think that faith is our gift to God, which is absolutely mindless, because Ephesians 2:8 reminds us of what? Faith is God's gift to us. That faith is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Faith is a gift of God, but it's also gifted to us that we would suffer for his. There's some out running around out there. God doesn't want any of his people to suffer. 
Hebrews tells us concerning Christ, he himself learned obedience through the things that he suffered. The struggles of this life, of which I must tell you, are many. And many of us can share in that. They have purpose to grant us humility, to cause us to be dependent upon God for strength. But I want to see state again, it's important to note this. So what makes the difference between one and the other on this day? 1 Corinthians 4, 7 reminds us of these things. It says this, for who sees anything different in you? What makes one person this and one person that? What makes one person tall, one person short? One person highly intelligent, one person a little less so. What, what makes the distinction between uh, the, one person to be able to sing sweetly and the other person to make sounds that seem like they're coming from a wild animal? What makes, what, what makes the difference between one and the other? Well, we know there's one thing that makes a difference between all. Who sees anything different in you? What do you have? That you did not receive. So if someone has a great voice. Can he praise himself? Hmm. If he's incredibly nimble and athletic. Should he praise himself? No. They Do they? Yeah. And not only do they. But men also praise them. All of the, the abilities and talents of men. Ought to lead us to the praise of God. And also ought to remind, remind people. That the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. <laughs> Blessed be the name of the Lord. <laughs> and so, what do you have to do? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The fact that I heard the word and maybe that you heard the word and believed, we can't boast. The fact that they heard, the Sadducees heard and didn't, and many others heard and did, did not make the other people better than the Sadducees. Didn't make them wiser. What made the difference between one and the other is what you received. These received on that day the faith that comes through hearing that's a gift of God. And as God implanted that faith, they believed I mean, uh, some, again, someone, it gets confusing to us. So someone says, well, then how do I know if I have the gift of faith, if God has given me this gift? Here's how you know. You believe. How do you know that God's given you the gift of sight? You see. How do you know he's given you the gift of hearing? You hear. How do you know, even as we were considering in, in, in Sunday school, how, how would any of these uh, barren women that constantly God came through throughout the centuries and said, you will conceive and give birth to a son after so many days in a year or so many times. Now, how would they know? How would they know that they have conceived? You know, it's not. There's nothing that they can they can do. Uh, uh, to, to get that conception going. It is all the grace of God. Most of these times, uh, for those women who were barren, they had already jumped through all the, the medical and practical and human hoops possible to try to achieve conception and could not. 
And then God comes and says, I'm making it happen. And sometimes they look at him and say, you cannot. Well, all right, you can doubt it. But know this, when there's a baby in your womb, you just might want to stop doubting it. This is the power of God. As it says, um, the scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 2 and following. This is really, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14 and following is really an explanation, an expansion on the very experience that took place this day. Same teaching, differing or contrary reactions. It says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in a triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. When we declare the word, God is pleased. The idea of an aroma of Christ to God, it, it, it hails back to the terminology of sacrifices. You know, and the sacrifices were offered and it would often, often say that it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And that often confused me because I'm thinking... God in heaven is smelling the sacrifice of that goat. And I mean, it would probably smell good to me. But how does that work? The preaching of the gospel is, a, is an aroma of Christ to God. It is, it is a sacrifice. It is a service, the fruit of our lips that is pleasing to him. And, and therefore, when we have done that, you know what we can say? Victory. God has been pleased as Christ has been declared. Victory. Now, practically, how does that work itself out in our earthly experience? Well, we are an aroma of Christ to God, to those who are being saved, and to those who are perishing. Now, on the day that we are looking at here in Acts 4, they heard the same words. The picture, metaphor that's being presented in 2 Corinthians is they smell the same smell. But for one, they smell it and it's like, oh yeah, I'm drawn to that. And the other smells it and it's like, oh no, oh no, I may never eat again. One is, the other is repulsed. Again, in verse 16 of, of 2 Corinthians 4, it says this, um, to one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. The same fragrance to one is like, yes and yes. And the other, it's no and no. Oh, I, uh, I want to live for this. I want to give myself to this. I want, uh, this is, nothing matters but this, really. Life to life. And the other's like, I want nothing to do with this. I don't even ever want to hear it again. I don't want to even come into contact again. I want it done, dead, buried, separated. But he says this, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like many, so many peddlers of the word of God. So in other words, we're not going to change the word because of how people react. We stick with the word as given to us by God. Do you know why? Because it's the aroma of Christ to God. It's pleasing to him. And it is accomplishing what it's supposed to accomplish. Among those who are being saved, it's life to life. Among those who are perishing, it's death to death. God has it all under control. But faith comes through here. 
Word of God. If I don't give the Word of God, is anyone going to believe? No. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. If I don't go there, there's no hope. Last verse in this particular one before we go on to the next few is 1 Corinthians 2 or 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 24. For the Jews demand a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Paul is basically saying here, this is our human expectation. This is our human expectation. When, when I preach to Jews, they're going to hate it. <laughs> when I preach to Gentiles, they're going to find it foolish. Basically, his human expectation is, nobody's going to accept this. Nobody's going to love this. Nobody's going to want this. But then what he says next is powerful. But to those who are called. I'm going to proclaim it all. And yeah, it seems in a sense it would have no effect, but it will have an effect. You know why? Because God, by his grace, is going to call some to himself. In that call, he gives them eyes to see, ears to hear, faith and hearts to believe and understand. That's why it says, but to those who are called, to both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. Wow. So not only do we have in this passage differing or contrary reactions, which is powerful, but we move on to what I would call uh, what we see as definite resurrections. This is highly offensive to Sadducees because they don't believe in resurrection. But remember this, in Acts 4, 2, he says this, they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, there's something in, the, in those words that's very powerful and very precise that lots of commentators try to mess around with that. I, I think even some translations even avoid the terminology and simply say they were preaching resurrection from the dead using Christ as an example God forbid that we should change and add those words. It actually says they were preaching in Jesus resurrection from the dead. Not, not only that Jesus himself rose from the dead, yes, but they were also preaching that in Jesus there is resurrection from the dead. It is a, there are definite and sure resurrections. Now, surely Christ's resurrection establishes in us the absolute confidence that the promise of resurrection is sure. Which is why, for example, the scripture uh, reminds us of, of these very things when it says um, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17 and following, if, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The resurrection of Christ is absolutely foundational. The death, burial, atoning satisfaction of Christ and his resurrection and victory over death in the grave, the accomplishment of all righteousness on our behalf, these things are essential. If, it, if, it, if Christ had not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, 
We are people to be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen. And that's not that's not a secondary thing. Uh, what, what disappoints me sometimes, and we, we really want to pray and urge our brothers and sisters in Christ in this way. Um, too often, instead of the gospel proclaiming who Christ is and what God accomplished in Christ, we're, we're, we're proclaiming what they are in their flesh wanting. Are you wanting more peace? Are you wanting more joy? Are you wanting more happiness? Are you wanting more health? Are you wanting more this or that? Are you wanting heaven rather than hell? Are you wanting, well, Jesus is the way to get what you want. <laughs> Missing the point. You declare Jesus for who he is and all that he is. And one of the things that is interesting is there isn't a constant repetition of this raised from the dead. Acts 2, he had said, you crucified and killed him. Verse 20. Says God raised him up. Acts 3.15, you killed the author of faith whom God raised from the dead. When Paul is going to speak in Acts 13, he's going to speak of him being uh, taken down from a tree, laid in a tomb, Acts 13.30, but God raised him from the dead. In, in Acts 17 in Athens, again, he's given us assurance of all these things by raising him from the dead. The fact that Jesus is raised from the dead is absolutely crucial. He has risen just as he said. And then the scriptures uh, remind us of this in John 5. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming. John 5, 28 and following. For an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Resurrection is sure. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And by his power and authority, ultimately all will be raised. Those who by grace have become believers. And, and because of that transforming grace, have walked in holiness, in obedience, in pursuit of God. Which is the, the, the gracious transforming grace of God. They, to judgment of life, to resurrection of life. The other... Who remain in their sin and hardness of heart and rejection to the resurrection of judgment. To definite, undeniable, sure resurrection. Of which it's no question to these apostles. That that's why later they're going to say in verse 20. We cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. They himself, themselves saw him crucified. Saw him buried. Saw him Raised from the dead. Saw him ascend to the father. No questions in their mind. And then lastly we come in this section. To what I would call. Determined or defiant resolves. First of all. We see this. The. Men. Peter and John here who have spoken. Are resolved to declare. The name of Jesus. And you see that in the, in the, in the preaching to the, uh, regarding that man who was healed, it is in the name. It is through faith in the name that this person is healed. Even as they now have the opportunity in the presence of these men and they challenge them, by what me, name are you doing these things? And what name has, by what power has this person been healed? And what do they immediately do? They begin proclaiming Christ to these people who are putting them on trial for it. 
It's important for us to understand week we saw that in, in that healing it brought about a, a gathering and a gathered group became a gospel opportunity. Here, a, an opposition becomes a gospel opportunity. I might look at this and say, wow, it looks like the men of God in the scripture are kind of trying to take everything that's going on as a gospel opportunity to make known the name and person and power and salvation that is in Christ. And again, what I want us to see we, in this, and we, we must not miss it, is as they declare the name of Christ, they, they declare the sureness of who he is and what he has accomplished in his death and resurrection. They declare him to be alive and they announce who he is. They declare him to be singular and him to be saving. It tells us this. Verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. I mean, again, the same kind of thing. Why do we believe that? Because the scriptures say it. There's no other way of salvation. And there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I love that because, again, it doesn't say by which we may be saved. Christ has not simply opened a door. I love the way that, that God in his word is pleased to say it. It's not that he simply opened a door. He came to seek and save the lost. He seeks them. He saves them. The great shepherd of the sheep, he will leave the other 99 and he will track down that one who is missing and put it on his shoulder and bring it back. Our Savior is a sweet and Savior and there's no one else. There's no other way. But we also see another resolve in this passage in verse 17 and 18. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in this name. The enemies are resolved to what? The, uh, Peter and John are resolved to declare the name of Jesus. The others are resolved to stop the teaching in the name of Jesus. And then I guess I would add to that, the disciples are resolved that they must never stop. I would go further, not only must never stop, indeed cannot stop declaring the name of Jesus. The way they say it in verse 19 is this, but Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must be the judge. For we cannot but speak. We don't have a choice in this. Those who, who, who have had their eyes open, their hearts open, their ears opened, that know it, that know it in truth, that know that this is life and this is life to life, that's what they're going to speak of more than anything else. The name of Christ, the glory of Christ, the glory of God is going to be on their lips. They cannot but speak. They must Speak. And they did. And they knew it would happen because even in Acts 4, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, spoke to them, rulers of the people. On the day of Pentecost, filled with the Spirit, they spoke. Here, filled with the Spirit, they spoke. They also know this. Every time the Spirit of God is going to come upon us, yeah, we're going to be declaring the gospel in the name of Christ in the power of the Spirit. And we ain't stopping it. 
So we see basically things in this passage by way of recap. One, same teaching, but differing reactions. Greatly disturbed or graciously saved. Secondly, we see that there is definite resurrections. Christ rose and that guarantees the resurrection of those who are his to life eternal and those who are at enmity, remain at enmity with him to the second death, eternal suffering. Lastly, we see the defiant or determined resolve. They were determined to declare the name of Christ. The enemies were determined or resolved to stop the teaching in his name, but they were resolved to never stop teaching in his name. And I guess I could go even further and say this, and God is resolved to save his own through the declaration of his name and his word. 1 Corinthians one twenty one, and I end by reading 1 Corinthians one twenty one, and then verse 30 as well. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know, wisdom, know God, know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Then it goes on to say, God chose, God chose, God chose. So much so that verse 30 says this, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Why am I in Christ Jesus? It's because of him. Why are you in Christ Jesus? Because of him. You know what it's not? Because of me. It's not because of my parents. It's not because of an evangelist. It's not because of a preacher. Those who are in Christ, it is because of him we are in Christ Jesus. His choosing, his calling, his understanding, his bringing godly conviction and repentance, his giving, saving faith, bringing us to believe. Let's pray.